You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles. The projectionist has Micha. I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski, my favorite co-host, I would say. <laughs> He's definitely my favorite movie co-host. I mean, I, we, we, we've had a couple. So Yitzhak, it's not like, it's not like that there isn't a competition, you know, and, and that's really just a lead in to what we're going to talk about. Uh, two Bob Hope films. I guess they can even be considered sequels, uh, in, in a way. Well, they're part of a trilogy then. Yes, yes, a trilogy. Three of my favorite films. We're not going to go to the third one from 1951, from 1942, 1947, and 1951. We've talked about Bob Hope in the past, and Yitzhak, you know, my fondness for him. I think he was one of the most pliable, amenable comedians who was really able to take his radio persona and really was able to transfer it to film in an extremely successful manner. We talked about Benny being sort of ill-served by the material that the movies threw at him. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how wonderful he was in To Be or Not To Be. I think Hope was more successful as far as that goes. Both of them were tremendous on the radio. I would say Benny was probably, uh, had more of a, of a built-up radio presence that people were waiting for than Hope's programs. But Hope, Hope was really able, I think, to be very well known as that guy, sort of like a Jim Carrey, Steve Carell. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Glenn Beck compared him to Jerry Seinfeld. They said Jerry Seinfeld today was Bob Hope in the 60s. Yeah, that's not a bad comparison. The only, the only thing is, is that Jerry, of course, was part of an extremely popular television program in a way that when Hope was doing television, you know, it was all variety. But I think the real glory, and we've talked about this, the real glory era of Hope was in the the, the early 40s through, I would say, the first couple of years of the 1950s. And that's why these three films pretty much are part of, you know, Hope's glory days. Now, 1942's 
my favorite was my favorite blonde. Now, for years, Hope had been talking about Madeline Carroll. She already had had an extremely successful career in England and was sort of like the Carol Lombard slash, you know, Gina Harlow, a character of, of England, very well known. And Hope had for years on his radio show been wanting to connect to Madeline Carroll. He'd always been saying, I wish I had Madeline Carroll with me. She was sort of like the female joke of like the girlfriend that he wishes he had. And when Madeline Carroll heard about this, they talked as, you know, Hope was a, a born in England. So, you know, uh, Carroll had a, a natural connection to him. And as, of course, as the war started to uh, become a, a much stronger reality, Carroll came to the United States and she spoke about Hope, about doing a, a movie with him. And, you know, she was very happy to do a completely comedic film that was satirizing her most famous film that American viewers had seen, which, of course, was The 39 Steps uh, with Robert Donat. And that was a film that put her in the uh, in the middle of some intrigue. Of course, it's a thriller where, you know, a fellow who, without realizing it, it becomes embroiled in a uh, in, in a, a plot of spies who are trying to somehow come up with some super type of weapon or something, and without realizing it, he gets enmeshed with this girl and is being chased all over England. And that was really what the Thirty Nine Steps was. It was a very exciting film. Uh, it was remade. I don't think the remake ever matched the original, but it really set the standard for what Hitchcock tried to do for years, including, of course, probably the pinnacle of Hitchcock remaking himself, which was a North by Northwest, which is pretty much the same plot where you have a character who gets somewhat self-involved, who finds himself in, in many ways drawn because of a woman into intrigue that it's not really his. And he, along with the audience, have to try to figure out what's really going on as he tries to escape all various assassination attempts. My point is, is that American audiences who had seen Hitch's film recognized Madeline Carroll because of hope, keeping her in people's consciousness. And she was known uh, as part of the genre. I think in 1942, although the film was made before Pearl Harbor, uh, there had already been an affinity in people's minds between what Britain was going through. There were still some isolationists. We've already mentioned that most people in Hollywood were more left-leaning, or at least understood that this was a just war, and that we had to do whatever we could to help the Allies. I think that was most of the sentiment of the Hollywood moguls and producers, and the film subtly tried to push that idea. In this film, it's never, even though it was it was released after America was officially at war, you don't have all the GIs and and sense that we are fighting the the Germans. In fact, I th I think the word Nazis is only said once, and it's it's you have to you have to listen very carefully to hear it. Though in the trailer, they do mention that they were fighting the Nazis. Which yes, the trailers was were made always after the, the, the final film was ready for uh, to, to, to be showing. And then the trailers would cut, would take little snippets of what they thought were some of the most alluring parts of the film and then try to get audiences who were seeing some other film to make sure that they would come back to see this film. And those were what the trailers are. But as I said, the film really puts your sympathy with the 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 Brits who are trying to somehow, they have the hold of some secret microfilm, which is inside of some sort of scorpion brooch, which 
someone has already died for. And it's only Madeline Carroll, uh, who plays, I think, Karen, I think is her name, and Karen Bentley, I think is her name in the film. She is able to smuggle this into New York City, and she's being chased by Nazi spies who want to kill her. Not sure why they can't, you know, just shoot her, you know, and then run away. But somehow she's able to, uh, and, and, and from this point, it's almost like a typical thriller. And it's true about the second film I'm going to talk about, my favorite brunette. The first couple of minutes, you sort of think that you're in a, it's not like you have Bugs Bunny's face at you right in the beginning with Bob Hope. You know that it's a Hope film. You know the comedy is going to come. And in both films, till Hope shows up, it has a certain sense of seriousness. Madeline Carroll is being chased. She might die. She ducks into a vaudeville-like theater somewhere in New York. And somehow the very first act that she sees on the chalkboard is Haynes and Percy. And that is Hope with Percy the Penguin. Hope is a, is as a vaudeville act with a trained penguin. And I mentioned this to you off pod. It's almost like the penguin steals the movie in some ways. There is this trained penguin. I don't know if the penguin appears in other films. Uh, doing an internet search, you see that Percy is a very popular name for a penguin. This might be the first Percy the penguin that, that we know of, but. This Percy is able to, on command, go down a slide, is able to walk and waddle. And of course, it might be trick photography, but Percy is quite impressive. And Bob, playing Haynes, wears a sort of a penguin nose, and he's sort of Percy's trainer. It becomes clear that when uh, uh, Madeline Carroll, who is hiding in Bob's dressing room, she notices a... The telegram. The telegram indicates that, oh, they want Percy in Hollywood to make a movie called Igloo Love, which I guess with Percy at the star and Bob and, 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 and Haynes's or Bob Hope's agent with the name of Nat, probably some sort of Jewish agent, uh, is telling him that he maybe has a part for him for 30 bucks a week, possibly, if he comes by to help to help keep Percy in line. So. It's already established the persona. Hope is just an entertainer, a comedian, somewhat of a failed one as well, who's really hanging on the bootstraps of something with more talent, which is the trained bird. And, you know, he's all full of bluster that really he's going to Hollywood. The movie's really going to be about him. And Percy is only an add on. Of course, uh, Madeline Carroll, this English secret agent, already has figured out that this guy is sort of a dupe. And somehow, since he is going to California, probably by train, she'll be able to go with him to Chicago, where she needs to deliver the secret plans or whatever it is that she has, the microfilm, whatever she has in that brooch of hers. And she could probably use Haynes as a way to sort of like avoid the killers that are out to assassinate her. And which she does, but she does it, of course, by just coming on to him. And of course, what do you do when you are a sex starved comedian who isn't particularly handsome or dashing and a beautiful blonde woman is in your dressing room? Well, of course, he gets suckered into it, though he doesn't, you know, he thinks that maybe she's just some sort of fan that's in love with him and they are off and the film takes off from there. I have to say that. I've seen so many Bob Hope films since I was a child, 
And this film has a certain, uh, retains its narrative structure a lot more. It's like we've talked about how Hope constantly mugged for the camera, broke the fourth wall, talked to the audience. And this film, I think, and again, I think more than the second film of tonight, I think he keeps more in line. I can't say that the one-liners come fast and furious, but there is uh, at least some sort of fealty to the thriller structure that they're trying, in a way, to satirize. Uh, And part of it is, you know, you're involved with this woman, you don't know what's going on. But instead of, you know, Robert Donette, who's sort of seeing his struggle of becoming a a more involved person, he was a Canadian who really starts to care more, and he, he becomes connected to the cause the arc of, of of character building that happens in the film as everything becomes clear hope doesn't have much of a character arc that's that's not what he's there for but at least in this film he he goes from being selfish to deciding that he wants to try to help the cause but it has to do with the fact that he's fallen in love with his co-star with with Karen, and she incredibly has somehow fallen for him as well as the way Hollywood films always have them. I think that probably there's two scenes that I believe are really, I, I don't know if I would call them a masterpiece. Uh, you know, uh, Sidney Lanfield was the director of this film and had a number of, of, of writers. Two of the writers were, were Hope's normal radio writers, who this was their first uh, screenplay. Uh, they were used to writing for Hope on the radio, and they wrote two wonderful scenes. One scene is when they are in a uh, Chicago, uh, a lot of the film happens, uh, is uh, is in Chicago. The main part of the middle part of the film is where they get off the train in Chicago, and it's there again. The assassins are are trying to uh, to get to them, uh, and they discover that that in the in the Chicago uh, hotel room, you know, somebody has been, you know, somebody has been killed. Uh, there's a knife in the guy's back. He's the person that they're supposed to give the plans to. In that Chicago hotel room, Haynes figures out a way that they can somehow escape. And that is to act like a wild, crazy married couple who are having a fight with each other. And they start tearing apart the suites that they're in, throwing stuff, throwing vases, screaming at each other. Uh, like a typical American couple, just coming up with all these insults. And the police arrive. And uh, as they're taking them down to the station, they, in the police car, they start pretending they're making up with each other. And they start talking to each other in baby talk, the way couples make up with each other. Oh, what is hoochie poots you want? Oh, queenie weenie. Oh, does a daddy one loves you so much? And it's very cute the way Hope and Carol do it. And it's so, it's so disgusting to the policemen. The policemen just want to kick them out because whenever you see couples engaging in some of this sort of baby romantic talk that should be just reserved for a couple and should never be seen, the, the policemen, they just say, hey, get out of here. We can't stand hearing of that stuff anymore. That was a very, very, very cute scene, including the fact when a radio gets thrown through the window and before the radio gets thrown in, Hope turns the radio on. And of course, it's the Bob Hope show and Hope says, I can't stand that guy. And uh, he throws the radio through the glass. Uh, the other great scene is when um, they are, they're being chased onto a, a roof. Uh, the cinematography is actually quite, uh, something I think even Hitchcock would have appreciated where the, uh, the, where the assassins are down below and she has fallen asleep and hope figures, look, 
he's had enough here. Uh, this is not his fight. Uh, and he goes through as he's leaving her and going to maybe perhaps, you know, escape and, and just pursue his life the way he should with his, with his pet penguin and get onto Hollywood with the, and make something of himself. He actually goes to a, a, a qualms of consciousness and you can see him actually talking to each other. And it's true. It's funny the way he's sort of talking to these imaginary devils and angels that are on his shoulder, but he does it in a way that sort of rings true. And he sort of admits to himself that it's her cause, but it's also because he's fallen in love with her and he can't just leave her the where she is in that spot. Again, it is 1942. There isn't, you know, there there is a little bit of stuff that got through the censors. There's some kissing that happens and there's an implication that she's French kissing him. But again, it's the type of thing that's so subtle, it's hard uh, it's hard to catch. There are plane rides. Uh, there's things that are stolen. And in all these films, part of what I think is is being made fun of is that for a greater cause, you can always steal somebody's car. Like if you have to save the country, doesn't make a difference. Take somebody's private property, smash up a bunch of of buses. Doesn't make a difference. You're doing stuff for the greater cause of saving, making democracy, uh, and making the world safe for democracy in the world. There is some uh, some very funny stuff as well when people believe that uh, uh, that he is uh, when he gets mistaken for being a some sort of obstetrician and uh, gynecologist. Alfalfa Schweitzer has a cameo <laughs> in this film as well. Uh, where Cope has tr- tried to pretend that he's some sort of Benjamin Spock of his day, gets a, a number of yucks. Uh, about how old was he then? He was a teenager then? He wasn't a teenager yet. Um, I think he was about 10 or 11 at the time. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, I guess, I guess Easter eggs for people who, who care about, about these things. Uh, there is, of course, a, uh, a scene which, again, I found funny, but I think many people today will not. They're going to a Teamsters picnic in Humboldt Park, which I think is an actual park in Illinois somewhere. And uh, this is their way of escaping. Uh, they get on this bus with a bunch of other Teamsters, and most of them are Irish. And uh, Hope and Carol assume an Irish brogue, and um, Hope gets on the bus by calling himself Moruni. You know, you know, in other words, he's, how am I supposed to get on this bus? Your name has to be on a chart. As he's waiting in line, who tells him exactly which line to go into? Why, it's Bing Crosby himself, who happens to... Um, show up. And of course, Crosby did a cameo, I think, in almost every one of Hope's individual efforts. And when Hope gets to the bus, uh, to the person who lets him on the bus, Hope has to come up with his name. So he says, oh, it's Mulrooney. That's 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 Mole with Ooney in it. So of course, oh, Mulrooney, here you go. Uh, and of course, when the real Mulrooney comes, the fellow who has let Hope on the bus says, you can't be Mulrooney. He's Mulrooney. Mulrooney is over there. And of course, the police show up and show a picture of, of Hope, who's wanted by this time for murder because he's being set up for murder. And of course, the guy says, oh, that's Mulrooney. No, I'm Mulrooney. And of course, they go into a uh, a battle royal, the, the, the real Mulrooney with the guy who lets him on the bus, who's Mulrooney and who's not. 
And of course, because Irish are always fighting, this was one of the uh, sort of, uh, in those days, you could come up with various ethnic um, modalities. And the Irish, of course, we talked about this, of course, in the great Errol Flynn movie of Gentleman Jim, they're always fighting each other. They're always ready to, 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 you know, to get into it. But that sort of becomes a running gag because when they get to the park and Hope and Carol have to escape stealing a bus, of course, once again, the two guys are still fighting each other about who's Mulroney. And even though it didn't really make sense, the title, My Favorite Blonde, uh, I think in the title cards they say, Bob Hope wants to tell Madeline Carroll that she's my favorite blonde. The studio, that film was a big success. And they liked the idea of satirizing a certain genre. And five years later, after World War II, You'd think that there was a more serious feeling in the country, but people want comedy. So My Favorite Blonde becomes the second film. This is the film you watched, and I happened to watch it again as well now, last now, night. Did they plan it originally that it should be a, a I don't series? think so. I, 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 I think it was just... The uh, road pictures were pretty much planned from the beginning to be a series, I would assume, no? Yeah, so let's tell everybody if they don't know, if they've been living under a, a celluloid rock up until now... That that Hope and Crosby and Dorothy Lamore and Dorothy Lamore became this team of a series, I think, of seven or eight road pictures. And in many people's minds, they think like like like, for example, although I was familiar of Hope doing films on his own because I saw them all when I was a kid. They were all on television all the time. Many people think that Hope and Crosby are sort of like, you know, they're like 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 Martin and Lewis. But Hope and Crosby had careers independently before Paramount decided to put them together in these road films. Crosby, in fact, uh, was in film almost from the beginning of the sound era. Of course, he was an incredible uh, recording artist. He was a, a breakthrough recording artist. But when he got into films, when the sound era burst out, uh, he was in a number of films and even taking a star role. The, the road films, I think, began in, in 41. I think, was that the first road picture? I believe so, yeah. It was The Road to Zanzibar was the first Right, one. so that was the very first road film. Oh, let's put these two guys together. And there was an amazing chemistry between them. So the road pictures were being made, but that didn't mean that Crosby and Hope were glued together. This was sort of a lark for them. These road pictures, Yitzchak, were complete... But they didn't even have the pretense of of sticking to the script like My Favorite Blonde and My Favorite Brunette. The right. road pictures would, every three minutes, would be mugging to the camera, right? Every three minutes, the you, you would have either Hope or Crosby talking to the audience about how silly and ridiculous everything that was going on. And there'd be constant references, let's say, even though the road pictures were sometimes happening in the desert and a hundred years ago and were happening in some different period of history, there'd be all these anachronistic stuff that the road pictures would, would constantly do, almost really like a cartoon film. Yeah. Nowadays, even I, I haven't watched the show in a long time. Family Guy, they make a lot of references to the road pictures with Stewie and Brian being, you know, taking the places of Hope and Crosby and they, and they sing the same songs and everything. They really, uh, it really hasn't been replicated the, that type of dynamic. And it, it was, it was really like lightning in a bottle. Uh, these two, I mean, again, they don't really need each other, but they, but, but for example, having, 
having uh, Crosby as a cameo was was great in 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 the films because you know that Hope and Crosby are together in other films and and and, and there is you know there's a new term Yitzchak. It's not so new to our audience. Frenemy. They were frenemies with each other. They were always rivals, friends. But there was always, of course, you know, the fact that Crosby would come out on top. Crosby would get the girl. And in these films, Crosby is just a sort of like a presence that sort of hovers over it. But in my favorite blonde and my favorite brunette, it's Hope who gets the girl. And uh, he's very happy being able to finally get the girl and not being being on the outs. The whole film, My Favorite Brunette, has been in the public domain for quite some time. And so therefore it gets it makes the rounds uh, that other movies and, and the road to Bali is up from from the road pictures is the one that that also is in the public domain. And for that reason, uh, my friend, uh, Mr. Lobo, the, the movie host, but Bob Hope died in 2003. That was just around when Mr. Lobo started doing his show. So it must have been one of his first episodes on a local TV in California. And this was his his tribute episode to Bob Hope upon his passing. And he said, you know, we're, here we are honoring Bob Hope, the inventor of the Bob Sled and the Hope Chest and the Hope Diamond and bobbing for apples. And he went through a whole a whole routine deadpan about all these things that Bob Hope invented, it was, and he, he made a few other really good jokes. And they had, a, you know, on this particular episode, which you can find on YouTube, and actually it's a very good print, because I grew up, you know, seeing this movie with the public domain prints that weren't so good. And he also had trailers to various Hope movies, including My Favorite Blonde. And also he had all these commercials that Bob Hope did, mostly in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, Kmart commercials and car commercials and medical alert bracelet commercials and they incorporated- hope was hope was uh, very much connected in the seventies uh, and eighties to Chevrolet. He was very right. connected to that was you know they they in many occasions sponsored uh, the Bob Hope specials, uh, especially you know the, which as I said bombarded the airways and and were very that ranked very high in the Nielsen ratings whenever they came out. You know, when Hope did his special right before Christmas, it was not only a Christmas special, but it also had all the all-American football players. So it was like a big schuss to be able to to get on the Bob Hope show. I, it's incredible. A man in his 70s and 80s you know, was still able to have, and maybe that's why you consider him similar to Seinfeld, he had you know such perfect delivery of these lines they're obviously written for him but you know he still had that talent to be able to deliver them the way he presented himself you wouldn't know it was written for him you really thought he was saying this usually that's right that's right that's that's part of his you know and, and that's probably true really you know even in these movies you really believe that he isn't reading from a card it's coming from him but the one-liners i think increase quite a bit in my favorite brunette and it really is a a film that's pretty hard to figure out exactly what's going on there's a great a cameo uh, by alan ladd in the beginning where hope and he's not a vaudeville guy with a pet penguin he is a baby photographer who happens to have an office next door to a uh, a Seamus next door to a Sam Spade 
type of figure, played by Alan Ladd, of course, who was in The Glass Key and This Gun for Hire and other films. By that time, Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake uh, had already become a, you know, a great team of, you know, in, in sort of this, this hard boiled private eye genre. And that's really what this film is about. It's a pastiche really of like the Maltese Falcon or This Gun for Hire or the, or the Blue Dahlia or any of those films where somehow the private eye who's, who narrates and hope narrates this film as well. As I said before, it starts in a death row where our hero is about to be executed and reporters are allowed in and it allows hope to do a pretty good imitation of Dick Powell or any of these guys in the Raymond Chandler films who would talk about the broad that came in and what she looked like and hope does a great job narrating. Again, there's so many holes in it, you know, in terms of the story, you sort of really don't care. Dorothy Lamore in this film plays some sort of exotic. We're not sure exactly what country she's from. And somehow she's connected with some old guy who's originally her husband. And then it's really her uncle. But somehow he is connected to a piece of land somewhere in some country that there's a map that leads to it. And that mine, eventually you get, you have to wait till almost the middle of the movie to realize that it's uranium is somehow connected to it. Similar to the first film where she hides, Madeline Carroll hides the microfilm. Here, uh, somehow the map is given to the Ronnie Jackson character, but he's pretending that he's the hard-boiled private eye yeah. Sam McCloud. So yeah. um, just like in films like The Maltese Falcon and in a similar way, like the, even sort of a little bit like D- Double Indemnity, he ends up being drawn to this woman going to this strange sort of palatial Spanish-like estate. And it's clear there that he's told that this woman is insane. She suffers from schizophrenia. She doesn't know what's going on. But we realize that behind it, Ronnie's being told a bunch of baloney that really she's not schizophrenic. This is all sort of some way to gaslight her and him because these guys are some sort of cadre of who knows what. Are they working for another country? Do they just want to have the money for themselves? It's not clear. In the first film, they're Nazis. You know what they're after. They're after to try to make sure that England won't get the plans and they'll be able to destroy all the Ameri- the, the the bombers and the airplanes. In this film, I'm not sure exactly if you figured out what it is they wanted. They wanted the map. They wanted the stuff. They had an imitation uncle who looked, who I think was played by the same actor. But I think the best thing is that th- in the first film, Although you had the Nazis with Gail Sonnegrad uh, as the uh, as the leader, <laughs> this female Yavolnik. Yeah, here you have the two great uh, henchmen. If I want to recommend my favorite brunette, the 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 bad guys, you have you have Lon Chaney, basically as I told you, sort of a bad guy, but who doesn't really want to be a bad guy. He's basically reprising his role from about eight years earlier that you highlighted on this program, his role as uh, as Lenny, sort of a simple-minded muscle man who is being uh, basically ordered around by these bad guys to sort of do their scheming. But the real sort of muscle isn't necessarily uh, the, the sort of uh, the pressure that the Lon Chaney slash Willie character exercises upon uh, on hope, but it's the assassin like qualities of Peter Laurie, 
in both films, really, the police are completely clueless and they don't know really what's going on. And of course, the the main characters are, seem to be able to have their run of everything. But Peter Lorre seems to be this expert knife thrower. He ends up, of course, not only that, but he seems to be everywhere. He's able to sneak into cars and he's able to assassinate people. And of course, the assassination gets pinned on uh, on Ronnie Jackson. And once again, similar to the first film, they have to somehow escape and they are fugitives that are somehow escaping. And instead of going to the West, this is going the opposite direction. And my favorite blonde, they're going from the East Coast, making it to California eventually to give the, uh, to give the plans over. Actually, it happens at a funeral parlor where they give over the plans. That's where the agent for the Brit, the Brit, the Brits are. In this film, it goes the opposite direction. They start in San Francisco and they end up in Washington, D.C. There's a couple of, I don't know if you like the scene in the, in the, in the hotel, uh, where Hope is a bespeckled a bellhop and they discover the dictaphone that puts recordings onto a live record. And, uh, somehow this is going to be the uh, Dorothy Lamore in her characters is, is able to get. So they're able to discover Charles Dingle, who plays this sort of villain with a Southern drawl. They're able to get him and uh, Peter Laurie to admit an earshot of the recording device. But of course, once again, the Peter Laurie is able to, with sleight of hand, he seems to be, has hands that can do anything. He's able to replace the record to actually a Betty Hutton. <laughs> it was It was like a Betty Hutton song that they end up singing uh, you're, you're killing me or something like yeah, that. yeah betty hudson murder. called you're killing me which ends up what's on the record once again he's he's he is brought to death row which takes you back to the beginning of the film i have i, I told you earlier off pod i felt there was a lot of gag material they just didn't have the time to work out buster keaton harold lloyd chaplin they would have said you know you you have this great premise Work it through. Do a callback. There's like, I felt really the film was stuffed with a lot of potential shtick that they could have done that they basically short shrifted. I think the, the, the earlier film, which I know you didn't see, it has less gags, but done more fully and fleshed out. I think my favorite Burnett has some ideas of what they're trying to do, but not not all of it really works out to the maximum effect. And I think that you really need to know, again, the editors really have, have to do it. Whenever you have a lot of ideas of a limited amount of time and running space of what people's attention is going to be, you know, I, I, I think that my favorite Burnett suffers uh, in that regard, you know, which film is ultimately, like I said, there's more one-liners in the second one. Is there more chemistry between Hope and Lamore? I think so. I think there's more passion there. Although, again, you know, there is that, 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 like I said, there's that implied sensuality with Madeline Carroll in the first film. Crosby, of course, gets his cameo. What did you think of Crosby's cameo in this one? And my favorite brunette. It was. It was. It, it served its purpose. <laughs> I mean, I you're mean, sort of expecting it's going to happen somewhere, and right. you're waiting for it. And they leave it right till the end, and then you see, you know, he, he, Hope is kissing 
Dottie Lamore, and then she turns around to, to check out to check right, because, out because 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 the very last scene. I mean, with, with spoilers ahead, it turns out that you know uh, he's the executioner who is upset. He's sort of like you know sort of like snaps his fingers in disgust that he's not able to pull the to, the gas into you know into hope into killing him. And that's the only that's the only time when hope really breaks the fourth wall in this, and it's that joke is a multi-layered joke because you have well let's say what the joke is he turns to the camera and says he'll take any part he'll take any part and then and then dorothy lamore looks at you know is, is checking out bing crosby and then hope calls her back in you know with it with like barking with like his a little dog. barking he has his little bark stick to get her back into the character of this film the, the point is is that this is my movie, and I'm supposed to get you. This is not a road film where I don't get you, and Crosby gets you. I think you're right. That's really part of what, you know, that's part of the layers that the move that the film is building on. Brilliant, brilliant joke when when it's all put together. It, it, each part on its own is funny, and when you put it all together, it's hilarious. That's just the right, it's, it's, right. And 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 I agree. Dorothy Lamar's little side glance at this cameo that just happened is again really building you the interest, not only the past interest that has been, but the future road films to come that did happen afterwards. And in those road films, consistently, hope is always on the losing end. He's more of a shlemiel. Uh, he's more of a sad sack. And like I said, it's it's incredible how, you know, that that, that was really the dynamic. You expect hope not to get the girl. He ends up, you know, <laughs> he is the unhappy one. What you said with the police officers, with Peter Laurie, the police say, if, if you come back here, we'll punch you in the nose and it'll look like other people. And yeah, that was a great line, too. Perfect. Yes. Yes, that is also a great line. Hope, let's let's give him credit. He was willing to be in vehicles that made fun of his physical appearance, including his very prominent proboscis, where he was able to say, yeah, I'll, like you say, I'll punch him in the nose. And your nose will look like everybody else's nose instead of being the way it looks. The Hope Crosby team created not only this dynamic, but also, I believe, and this is really my finish for tonight, my theory that takes us from the 40s into the years that I spent in my very early youth uh, watching television in the 1960s which is the Crosby persona of the cool crooner who's going to sing a song and everything's going to be cool, baby. And he's going to basically get the girl at the end. And no matter what, somehow he comes out on top. Whatever machinations his frenemy has, Crosby will win. And Crosby can win against whatever happens, whatever sort of evil they're both facing, whatever sort of bad guy. Uh, whoever it would be, Peter Ustinov or whoever it was, that was somehow faced against them. And Hope will be end up in the dust, but somehow still being his friend. And I think this was this type of cool guy who was a singer, who was able to get what he wants. And the person who was trying to stop him was sort of like a friend, but sort of an enemy. And he's cool with that. And you can always have the end titles. The people working on the post-advertising campaign in the 1950s took this Hollywood 
type of character that was a byproduct specifically, not of being Crosby, but of being Crosby in the road films and the way he worked vis-a-vis hope in terms of his successes there, that became the character of Sugar Bear for the post-serial that was called Sugar Crisp. Now remember, Sugar Crisp is one of the most easy cereals to replicate. Malta meal and any number of off-brands can do the same thing. They go to the mills that the United States are filled with in terms of the wheat that they're able to produce, and they pop the darn things. Cloyos, as is mentioned consistently in Chazal, but these cloyos aren't just wheat kernels that are popped in an oven. They are coated with sugar. So it's popped wheat with sugar. That's what it is. And yet, if you put a bear, and there were bears as part of the post-serials, even in the early 50s, maybe even as early as 1949, I believe. But when they came up with the idea of having one bear and having this one bear be the Crosby persona. Now, Crosby had recorded a version of Joshua Fit the Walls of Jericho. That ditty became the theme song for these commercials, starting from the early 1960s, of Sugar Bear. <laughs> Got to have some of that sugar crisp, sugar crisp. And basically every single commercial in 30 seconds or less had this dynamic of a Crosby-like character versus some sort of hope character, whether it was June Foray doing Granny Goodwitch or some other sort of character called Bob, Blob, not Bob, that Sugar Bear would get the Sugar Crisp. He would get the Dorothy L'Amour prize. The cereal companies sponsored so much of uh, of the Saturday morning cartoon shows, and, and they realized that the way to get the moms to buy is to come up with these characters, to come up with these interesting characters that you somehow, even though it's a serial that can be replicated by a hundred different companies, the success of the ad agencies of a character that somehow was, that, that would get people's minds and hearts involved in them because of these little, little 30 second commercials that would translate into boxes and boxes of cereals being loaded into the push carts in, in, in grocery stores all over the country. Now, there was also a, a period, it was ended by the Federal Trade Commission in 1969, where they said, although programs can sometimes have product placements, you mentioned Seinfeld, of course, Seinfeld, the Seinfeld program is is is, is chock full of product placements consistently. Yeah, they just Snapple on the... But the, the FTC ruled that you couldn't have a cartoon show, which is what like you had Linus the Lionhearted, that was basically a cartoon show that every single character had his serial. The ad, the, the ad companies had created these characters in order to meld them with a certain type of serial. And then they decided the post company, which basically decided to put on a television program starring those characters. And I watched a number of these. I remember them when I was growing up. They are insipid and horrible, but but it kept people watching. They were, you know, mostly uh, chase things where very cheap animation, where you have the characters just chasing each other, running back and forth, but using incredible voice talent. Sugar Bear was voiced 
by 40 years, incredibly, with a voice that didn't seem to waver by Jerry Matthews. Now, Jerry Matthews has some film credits, and you can find that on some of the pages dedicated to people's films. But he, for 40 years, was the voice. He was he was born in 1931. He's still alive. And from his late 20s and early 30s, he began a pitch-perfect imitation of Crosby. This is my Kiddish in the 40s to the 60s. So, you know, it's it's going to be 80 years, more than 80 years since that character persona was developed and Sugar Bear is still out there. I don't know who's doing the voice now. I'm not sure if the commercials are out there. But it really, really speaks to the tremendous dominance that serials had. Well, we've tried to recommend on this program vintage TV. I don't recommend any of the, anything except the 30 seconds commercials for Sugar Bear. Maybe when it started, he was okay. But in Crosby's last years, he threatened a lawsuit against Post unless they altered the voice of Sugar Bear. Some say that he, when he altered it, he made it more of a Dean Martin voice than a Bing Crosby voice. In a way, Dean is sort of like, in the history of film, Dean is sort of the next iteration of this dynamic. You have Crosby and Hope replaced by Martin and Lewis. And in fact, in one of the Hope films, I think at the very end of the film, you can actually see Dean and Jerry show up, I think, at the end of one of their road films, I believe, uh, indicating that they themselves knew that the cord had almost rolled completely, had been blanched completely. Kind of the opposite of of, uh, Edgar Bergen appearing in the Muppet movie. Yes, yes. There was was a sort of the sense that they were going to be passing on the torch to Martin and Lewis. And I think both of us agree that unlike these two that were really great performers on their own, that Paramount decided to put them together and they weren't necessarily fused at the hip. Martin and Lewis, although they probably had individual careers beforehand, never really made a national splash until they were t- together, starting off, of course, in the Catskills, and eventually, you know, in, in various, um, uh, I assume, various types of venues, till they were put into the movies. Jerry's character, which in a way sort of mirrored Hope, but was a very different character. It was the Schlepper, it was the Schlemiel, but th- there was almost a, there was an unworldly type of aspect to his character. You know, he he was sort of like a creature from beyond almost. He wasn't a knowing, winking guy to the audience saying, hey, how come I'm not getting the girl? He did that one movie where he plays the space alien and visits a small planet for uh, Gore Vidal's script. I, 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 as a big of a science fiction fan as I am, and as a big of a comedy fan as I am, that movie just rubbed me the wrong way. I couldn't, couldn't get into that movie, you know. Well, <laughs> again, you know, there's... Uh, again, I, I will recommend that we'll talk about Lewis and Martin on a different program. But, you know, Artists and Models, which was directed by Frank Tashlin. And Frank Tashlin, of course, had a very different type of sensibility. He had a cartoon he had written for 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 animation. And he was a very um, an inventive director. I talked about what he did on Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter before. I think Artists and Models was uh, was probably the pinnacle of the Martin and Lewis team. 
it, it's interesting, though, that, and this part, I think, needs to be spoken out. First of all, Lewis and Martin were together on the Colgate Hour. Uh, they did a number of wonderful shtick there, and I advise you, Yitzchak, because it's we'll free on YouTube. Also, yeah. Okay, but you haven't seen it. You yeah, should take I've advantage. Seen them. I've seen them. No, I've seen them. You've seen the Colgate Comedy Hour with Lewis and Martin? Yes, yeah. Okay. Those are quite funny. There's a lot of Yiddish in there as well. If you listen well enough, you can hear Jerry uh, throw in some Yiddish things there. But but again, remember, they were, in the or in the first years of the 50s, the most celebrated and popular comic duo. And, and here's the thing. As I've been saying over and over again, despite the chemistry between Hope and Crosby, they didn't really need each other for success. Lewis and Martin, that's who they were. And people didn't realize that Jerry was not the character that he was playing. Hope pretty much plays himself. Even when he's the sad sack who doesn't get the girl, he still gets in his one-liners, and he still has a certain element of comedic sophistication. Whereas the Lewis character, and I think this is part of the reason why it was difficult to maintain, he had to play the dumb, infantile person. He couldn't really break out of that. And I think because of that, I think that was part of the reason why they broke up. It's considered one of the great Hollywood stories because they were so successful. But one of the reasons was because Martin was not getting the attention that he felt he deserved. And if you watch those Colgate comedy hours, I think you'll see that Dean was quite a, a funny guy. He, he could do a lot of stuff, not just sing. Dean had quite a career afterwards, but it was interesting that, that it only lasted about 10 years. You know, he did a number of those Matt Helm films, which were sort of a uh, takeoff on, we talked about it with Tom Shabilla and takeoff on the, on the James Bond craze. By the late part of the 1960s, he was basically just associated as one of Sinatra's buddies, and his drinking became the the, the prime aspect of his personality. It's funny because in the in, in in my favorite brunette, they make a joke about oh uh, Ray Milan must have been here, you know? They, yeah, they yes, yes, that, again because the Lost Weekend. Right. That yeah. is a because when he finds a, a bottle of, 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 of booze somewhere in some sort of it's hidden like in up, some, up, in, up in the in, in the van and in the, in the lamp or something in this in the ceiling. And Mr. Mr. Lobo made the same joke. <laughs> yes, Ray Milan must have been here. But the, the point though is is that Martin as opposed to Jerry Lewis, who was still, you know, trying to make films even when, you know, his he had he had injured his body in the nineteen fifties. He did a pratfall and he was suffering uh, for the rest of his life, uh, taking painkillers, which ended up by the time, you know, he became a in his seventies and eighties, he had ballooned into like this grotesque version of himself because and when he was so thin when in the fifties and then he yeah. Right. And part of it was the the painkillers that he became addicted to and what that did to him. So it's 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 a quite a really again, you know, it's 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 tragic to think about about these two. Jerry Lewis ended up writing a memoir after Dean Martin's death where he called it, you know, you know, you know, Jerry I think he called it a love story and you can see it from Jerry's perspective. All I can tell you is I can't get enough of sugar bear. Take care my friends.
<laughs> Watch your step on the way out. Don't uh, if you got some cereal on the floor, pick it up. Be well, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 